Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined in my partner in this strategic enterprise, Elliot Cohen, who is the Robert Osgood Professor of Strategy at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at CSIS, joining us from Israel. Elliot, how are you? I'm just fine. It's uh, sunny and lovely here, but just as important, I'm actually finishing a book, which is, which is a great thing to have done. Um, I should say at the outset that I am not directly related insofar as I know to our guest today. Uh, I suspect that there is a tribal connection, uh, but you know that could go back 50 years, 100 years, or 2,000 uh, as these things go. So with that, I'll hand it back to you. Well, I want to welcome our very special guest today, uh, who is Nick Cohen, a columnist for The Guardian and Observer, a blogger for The Spectator, and an author of several books, including Cruel Britannia, Pretty Straight Guys, and my personal favorite, What's Left. Welcome, Nick Cohen. Well, thank you very much for having me. Your book, uh, What's Left, which, as I've told you uh, before we started the show today, I greatly admire, really talks about, in the early part of this century, the uh, left's failure to remember its anti-fascist roots. Um, and you you wrote about this in the context of uh, the Balkans, in the context of the war in Iraq. Um, today, we're now seeing uh, something similar, perhaps, in some quarters uh, with Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine. Where do you think the left stands in Europe uh, with regard to standing up to anti-democratic forces? Well, it's, that's a big question, actually. Um, social democracy, which was the dominant non-communist version of left-wing politics in the 20th century, is actually, it sounds like a sort of easy option. It's actually quite a hard option. On the one side, it's socialist. Uh, it is committed to really quite rigorous methods to transfer wealth. And the socialist side died out uh, in Britain under Tony Blair, it was all gone by then. In Germany, under uh, Gerhard Schroeder, one turns out, in looking at Ukraine, one of the great villains of um, modern European history. Uh, but there's also the democratic side, which is, again, hard for people because anti-totalitarianism, anti-fascism, it is very easy to be on the left when the dictatorship, the uh, evil regime, is one the US, the UK, France, whoever Germany supports, like Saudi Arabia, say, uh, for uh, mercantile reasons. Um, it's actually strangely harder for people when their own government is opposed to uh, Putin's Russia, say, or Saddam's Iraq, or, or even Nazi Germany, if you look back at the history of the British left in the 30s. It's because suddenly you have to say, you who are so good at and often rightly, condemning the iniquities, the injustices your government presides over, you suddenly got to say, well, actually, our government is better than the government in Putin's Russia. And our leaders, whatever we say, these leaders we're so good at opposing, um, uh, are doing something right. And people find that uh, uh, very hard. And moreover, they, 
they get into, and this isn't just the far left, this is whole governments, they get into a kind of um, uh, 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 a highly relativist way of thinking that, well, Russia, Russians have always had dictators. You know, you can't, you can't criticise that. And in the end, they get into, to go back to, say, the first decade of this century, they get into a system way of thinking that suits business, big business very well. That, well, okay, what's wrong with letting China into the World Trade Organization? You know, if they trade, they'll, they'll become nicer and better. What's wrong with your Germany with um, pouring billions of euros into Russia? And, uh, you know, trade will bring peace, trade will bring goodness. And of all the ideas of the early 21st century, I think that notion, which wasn't just shared by the German ruling class, but by, uh, well, the George Bush you work for as regards China and Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and all these people, Gordon Brown, that idea has taken a hell of a battery. It has turned out in the world we're in, globalisation, the World Trade Organization has simply not led to, uh, not even democracy, but more liberal versions of Chinese communism or a nicer, better Russia. It's not even a, a new idea, is it? I mean, it, the, this idea that greater trade and globalization would uh, bring peace and make you know war outmoded uh, was something that uh, circulated uh, broadly in Europe before World War I. Well, we did the great peace of the 19th century. Right. Uh, that was absolutely a driving force of liberalism. There's a famous book, famous for all the wrong reasons, published just before the start of the First World War by Norman Angel, I think, which is quoted in every, every history yes. book about yeah. the First World War. Yes, so this is ridiculous. How can there be a world? How can there be a war in Europe when we're so interconnected uh, through trade? Um, but it, 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 it's a notion, and it's quite an appealing notion. It would be wonderful if the world were like that. It would be much better if, you know, countries could just build their comparative advantages and trade with each other. You have a kind of Kantian version of the world which is in perpetual peace. Unfortunately, it's uh, rarely lost. So was the anomaly in all this, Nick, the early Cold War? That is to say, I mean, did some variety of this kind of delusion in some ways always exist. Uh, but there was just a particular moment after the Second World War when you had a whole series of social democratic uh, leaders in the United States, most definitely in Europe, who actually took a very hard stand on the Soviet Union. Uh, I think what the three of us would probably consider not just hard-headed, but a sound view of what needed to be done and of not just in Europe, but to some extent globally. Um. What's an anomaly? Uh, I think it's coming back. Uh, I think it's Putin. Putin. Uh, I, I'm trying hard to. I've, I've heard historians trying to come up with just a policy mistake as great as Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, I've heard people suggest Napoleon, Napoleon III declaring war on Bismarck and Prussia and losing everything. It is coming back. The early Cold War, yes. Well, the early Cold War, the Social Democratic parties, of course, you Clement Attlee in Britain, who is kind of in a strange way, the Labour movement, the Social Democratic Party in Britain, is an incredibly sentimental and nostalgic organisation. And Clement Attlee is lauded even on the left of the Labour Party as the great socialist prime minister. He actually set up NATO, 
uh, and committed British troops to fight in the Korean War. Um, that's partly because one reason for your anomaly may be that social democrats knew better than anyone what communists were like because they were fighting them the whole time. They were, in, they were trying to infiltrate their parties. Uh, in Eastern Europe, communists were sending them to camps, torturing them, killing them, or taking over their parties. Uh, with Putin, with China, I, uh, it's far harder for people to just have that kind of visceral, commonplace understanding, I think, of, of what's going on. I mean, certainly Chinese influence in Europe, in Africa, um, huge and huge amounts of money behind it, but people still don't have a very clear handle on what China is. And more importantly, I think, it's not a battle of ideas, it's about trade, it's about money. So you see in universities across Europe, and I wonder if it's any different in the US, taking huge amounts of money from China. Universities eat money. They love, you know, and, they, and they want it for good causes. They want it to get the best research, to get the best education for their children. And it's not as if, they're ta- it's not as if someone is coming to them as an old-style communist would do and saying, we want you to believe in these doctrines, which no free university could believe, they just saying, we'll take our money. And then down the line, they'll find themselves restricted or find themselves being have to be careful what they say, or do they make a fuss if the Chinese embassy and its agents start monitoring students? In some ways, I think an ideology, because you can... You know, intellectuals can can write it down and say, "Here's what the Soviet Union believes." You don't believe that, do you? No. Okay, fine. You can fight that. It's far harder um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Suddenly, all what what you're fighting against is um, very ruthless governments, but backed up by and able to buy all the services. Western societies offer lawyers. I mean, libel lawyers here in London have absolutely suppressed um, uh, criticism of Russian oligarchs. Lobbyists in America, who have a, in my view, vast and uh, an and, 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 and undeserving influence, they can buy PR companies, they can buy advertising agencies, they can buy political consultants, and something like that. I think is it's taken Western countries. It's taken the shock, actually of this monstrous invasion to just shake Western countries up and say, well, hold on a second, we don't want this. Yeah. Do you, do you, just a quick follow-up on that. I mean, it, it sounds as though it, you're actually fairly optimistic that there is a kind of stock-taking which will lead to a, a real kind of change in direction or a renewal of that older social democratic outlook on things. Do you, do you believe that? Cautiously optimistic. I mean, very cautiously. If you, I mean, if you look at it globally, you've got India and China, the two most populous powers in the world, both under the control of, uh, well, in China's case, uh, a hugely nationalist dictatorship. In Modi's case, well, what's the way it's going? A uh, highly authoritarian populist, to use that very unsatisfactory word, uh, you've got in Latin America, You've got Mexico, Brazil, you have Trump-like figures in power there, and Venezuela in its own way. Uh, in, um, in Europe, uh, we've got the Johnson government, which had distinct echoes of Trump, 
not just in style but in substance. Um, you have the French elections where the populist far right and the populist far left getting half the vote between them. Uh, the old parties of the centre-left and centre-right just obliterated. Uh, that all said, I mean, can you imagine what our conversation would be like if Putin got what he wanted? If in three days, Kiev had fallen uh, and a Russian puppet state were in control and uh, all dissidents uh, were being rounded up, that would have been the most enormous boost I think, for authoritarian forces around the world. Um, the, the stakes in this war, I don't, are incredibly high. And if we were to go on to see, and I'm not a military man, I'm in no position to judge, but if we would go on to see a Ukrainian victory, uh, that would dent some of the movements of the 21st century, it would certainly dent their confidence, I think. As we're uh, speaking about this, I've been, and as you were talking, Nick, I was thinking that the sort of kind of visceral anti-communism and anti-totalitarian sentiment of the center left, both in the United Kingdom and in the United States in the post-war, immediate post-war era, was, I think, a crucial element in the long run in the uh, triumph of democracy in the Cold War oh, yeah. uh, and the fact that it succeeded. And what, you know, as I look as, as someone who is on really the center right, as I look at my own side of the political spectrum and try to apply the same stringent kind of uh, views that you have done on the on the center left, you know, I find it utterly lacking the ability to describe certain kinds of conservative, populist, nationalist, authoritarian regimes as beyond the pale. I think about Viktor Orban in Hungary, for instance, who not only is not being sort of, uh, you know, read out of polite society by American conservatives, but being lionized, uh, you know, by Tucker Carlson on Fox News and by the Conservative Political Action Committee, CPAC, et, et, et cetera. And one wishes that there was a little bit more of that kind of uh, policing uh, of um, anti-democracy on the on the right in in our current environment. That's a bit of a way of segueing to the Johnson government, which you pointed out had some Trumpy elements to it. It's done rather well, I think, in the current uh, moment in terms of imposing sanctions, etc. But there's a rather tawdry history behind that. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, Russian money has poured out of Russia. There's one reason, actually, why Russia is losing the war. I mean, because the system is so corrupt, everything. Um, but corrupt Russian money has come to London, uh, buying up uh, high-end property, elite property, um, buying Russian oligarchs, kids, places in our private schools, uh, art, the art world, um, uh, a state agency, the law I mentioned earlier about um, we never had um, a First Amendment or crucially we never had the, um, the judgment uh, in, the, in the early 60s, the uh, uh, Sullivan v. New York Times judgment, which basically says English libel law, which the US still has and was being used in the South to uh, punish newspapers like New York Times that reported on what was happening to Martin Luther King and how his supporters were all being beaten up by the police. And they had massive libel judgments against them. And the Supreme Court of the day just said, no, no, English libel law does not apply in America anymore, or law we inherited from colonial times. And it's a very interesting point you make, because 
it hasn't bought the Conservative government's foreign policy. You cannot say that Russian money, including Russian money given directly to the governing party, has had any influence at all on the British government's decision to uh, arm Ukraine, to defend Ukraine. What it has done is corrupted British public life. Uh, we don't have the most um, elementary safeguards against fraud. It's, for, for instance, uh, offshore uh, luxury property can be bought by offshore comp companies whose ownership is impossible to find right in central London. There aren't checks done at companies' house. It's so much the case, and here's a point for all patriotic Americans listening to this, that when people want something done in Britain, I, I can't go into details because it's a difficult case, but and there are libel actions and flying around it, but I know for a fact that people will turn to the US Treasury and say, this guy is a pro-Putin stoof, he's got his billions from uh, deals across Central Asia, Please investigate him. Whereas in Britain, it's it, it's just about impossible. So, I mean, the upshot is that the oligarchical money has probably harmed Britain as much uh, as harmed the political culture, the democratic um, uh, resilience of Britain far more than it's uh, affected British foreign policy. No, I, I guess the thing is, I'm remembering uh, similar concerns that people expressed about the oil money that flowed into. Britain uh, well before that, um, where there were similar kinds of concerns, including the protection of British libel laws, which you know made it hard for people to be openly critical or even for journalists to do their the work. So I guess one question that that's one question. The other question is, again, do you think this is going to prompt a serious change, or will Britain still be open to this kind of thing for? any of a number of reasons. Well, I mean, serious change is happening. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I was rather cautious in response to your previous question, but let's go through it. Sweden and Finland have joined NATO, uh, and the, the left parties in Sweden and Finland have, have, have all agreed to it. The British Labour Party, which was in control of the forces I wrote about in What's Left, this very strange post-communist, um, uh, intellectually empty version of far-left politics under Jeremy Corbyn, it, now under its new leadership. Essentially, uh, Keir Starmer, the leader of the British Labour Party, says you cannot be anti-NATO and be a Labour MP. Uh, so, that, so that's changing. Um, the German Social Democrats, who've behaved just awfully for, for years on Russia, at least Schultz is saying some of the right things, although he still looks a kind of ridiculous figure, but at least he is offering aid to Germany, to Ukraine, so much so that Zelensky and the Ukrainian government, who were just furious with Germany about the way they appeased Russia, the way they appeased Russia in a very, very sanctimonious way, saying, oh, our war guilt, oh, because of the Nazis, we can't criticise Russia all the time, making vast amounts of money out of them and getting energy from them. But, you know, at least Schultz, uh, who's probably been the most damaged leader in Europe as a result of this crisis, is offering some arms to Ukraine. And the Ukrainian government think now it's better off pretending we're friends. In, in, in the politics of it all, you know, the smart politics is not to keep having a stand-up row with them. So that type of change uh, is happening. Whether 
uh, other countries, France, for instance, French commitment to, uh, uh, if you like, um, a, a democratic centre-left or centre-right Europe is strikes me as very thin when Macron retires, as he must do next time. It's far from clear to me that there is a, a force in France believing in liberal democratic values that, 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 can, that can win the next election. So, so, it, so, so it's a bit mixed. But in Eastern Europe, uh, excluding Hungary, obviously, as we said, um, Northern Europe and Britain to an extent, it, it, it is re- it, it, the invasion has really shaken things up. And also, and I think this is important every time we talk about it, the heroism of the Ukrainian response. I mean, if, you, if, if Ukrainians had not fought back with the courage and also the, the intelligence, the skill, um, the wit online they had, that has given a sort of surge of energy to people. And in a strange way, because people argue about what is the West, and that, you know, if we'd had this conversation a year ago, I think we've been hard-pressed to define it. In a strange way, Vladimir Putin is is creating a new West. Um, uh, and on the one hand, and Ukrainians are creating a new West by, by well, they haven't even, they haven't only uh, stopped Putin. There, there, there is you know, a possibility they could win this war. The most extraordinary thing. You know, I, I would like to draw you out a little bit more on on why it is that you think um, the Russian money failed to make a, a dent in, in British official policy. I mean, one might not have predicted that a year ago because of the suppression of various parliamentary reports about London grad and about the pernicious role of Russian money that you've described and the use of the libel laws. I mean, actually, just before the war, I believe, the uh, case brought by Roman Abramovich against Catherine Belton of the Financial Times for her excellent book, Putin's People, was settled, I believe, just before the war broke out. Well, it, it wasn't just... I mean, I mean uh, that story, uh, Catherine's story, shows you how things work here. Uh, Catherine publishes, I think, you know, as you say, it's an excellent book, but it's, it's a highly serious, well-researched book. Um, uh, Victor Navalny, in between being poisoned and being arrested, and one of his last acts as a free man, he's doing one of his YouTube videos showing Putin's villas in Sochi. And during the video, he holds up Catherine's book, says this is just a terrific book, exposing how Putinism works and uh, how the money works in Russia. So Catherine is suddenly a target for the Kremlin. Within weeks, it's not just Roman Abramovich, but three other Russian billionaires, and Rosneft, which is um, uh, effectively it's Putin's state, state oil company, absolutely central to Putin's power and to Russian power, all launched libel actions against Catherine in London simultaneously. Now, I can't prove that was a Kremlin hit, but, it looked, but you wouldn't be at all surprised if it were, and not for the first time, incidentally. Yeah, well, actually, Rosneft's run by his deputy, Igor Sechin, so it's kind of hard not to see the Kremlin hand behind it. And, and Igor, Sechin, Igor Sechin is the most feared man in his entourage. So, you know, <laughs> you know even, even in the clique of monsters, he is the most monstrous. So, yeah, it is hard to say. Technically, it's, uh, or there were until sanctions, some Westerners on the board. Um, uh, and um, at no point 
is there any play anywhere in the English system that someone could say, hold on a second, this is just lawfare by a hostile foreign power? No, no chance that can happen. In the end, it cost uh, Catherine's publishers, HarperCollins, £1.5 million to settle. They agreed to make timely changes. If it had gone to court in London, it could have cost £2.5 million. Uh, the Russians launched a similar libel action in Australia, which has had the bad luck to inherit the English legal system. They'd lost all those actions. It cost them £10 million. These, this is like, this is to go back to the civil rights movement in America. This is losses for reporting on matter of public interest that very few people can sustain. And the climate of fear. I mean, you see it, I see it myself in my journal, and suddenly your lawyer starts saying, well, look, Nick, this is a Russian oligarch. Yeah, let's go through this word by word by word. One interesting thing about um, uh, the invasion of Ukraine is Putin's put an end to that. My lawyer's going to say, I'll just buy what you want now, mate. Yeah, go for it. Um, uh, but perhaps we'll get some legal reform in Britain. It's very hard um, uh, with the English system, and indeed the American system, of adversarial law, because it, it so favours people with money. So I would take it then, Nick, that you would counsel our, our American listeners that former President Trump's frequent admonitions that we needed to m move our libel laws in the United States more in the direction of the UK's is not a good idea. It was, I, mean, I was just about to mention that. It was very, very telling he said that. I mean, as much as anything, that reveals so much about Trump, because he wants to be in a position where he can use money power, or ha rather have the rule of money supplant the rule of law, where he can use money power to really frighten American, the American press. It is frightening. And what's frightening is not the judgment of the court. The judgment of the court, well, you know, uh, is almost here nor there. It is the risk of massive, massive legal costs for a news industry which has had, uh, you know, its financial legs kicked out from underneath it by the internet and Facebook and Google. Um, it is so interesting that Trump wants that because you, you can pick bits of Trump's program and you say, well, here he's been looking at Putin or he can see why he admires MBS in Saudi Arabia. We see why he likes Erdogan. But from Britain, what he likes is a libel. Well, I must say, it does make you appreciate the Bill of Rights. Let me come back at the, this question because as you pointed out, uh, or Eric pointed out, Actually, the British government, in some respects, took the European lead in countering the invasion. Boris Johnson goes to Kiev. More tangibly, they um, really, I think, did a quite an admirable job of arming the Ukrainians very, very early on in, in ways that are effective. Took the initiative in extending guarantees to the Swedes and Finns in that period between the application to join NATO and, and the time when they're finally admitted. I was wondering if we could draw you out a bit on that, on Boris Johnson's, British government's foreign policy, and in particular, you know, how do you interpret this? Um, and I, you know, some of the people I know within the British government are very, very sincerely in favor of this. There's no question about that. It's not a oh, yeah. an attempt to gain partisan advantage. And uh, here's a very sensitive question, I think. Is there any connection, you think, between the British ability to really steer its own course in a quite a dramatic way, and Brexit, uh, even if it's only a psycho, not a legal connection, but a kind of a psychological connection? Well, um, to answer your last question first, I think there is a bit in conservative minds. 
in that, I mean, Brexit was such a, um, in my view, a mistake by the British government, by the British people. And one of the dangers of it is you isolate yourself diplomatically. British power, such as it is, is built on alliances. One alliance is NATO, another is real or imagined, a special relationship with America, and another absolutely was the European Union, uh, which is bound to have a defensive aspect as, as Europe's troubles grow. And you know, who knows? if Europe shouldn't anyway be asking America to uh, provide military services to a free of charge. How long Americans will put up with that? So I think a part of it is, um, yeah, we, let's show people the people who gave us Brexit, the Johnson government, that we are not this uh, isolated, faintly ridiculous country and doing that. I think also, I mean, particularly with Conservatives in Britain, it ties, it goes back to, uh, in their culture, what what they believe in um, and what they think is good, like standing up for, standing up for Hitler in the Second World War uh, and being unapologetic in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And so, in some ways, uh, Johnson's party is deeply divided. It might even at some stage vote to bring him down. But it's something that unites most Conservative MPs who actually have his future, have his future in their hands because at any moment uh, they could force a leadership election on him after, I don't know if your listeners call up with this, but... He broke COVID regulations with impunity all over the place in Downing Street. There were parties going on and everything else was locked down. So that could challenge a leadership struggle, uh, trigger, forgive me, a leadership challenge in the Conservative Party. And this is something that, in a way, to its credit, unites Conservative MPs. There are very, very few Conservative MPs who think we should, you don't hear anything like Tucker Carlson or I saw that scoundrel Trump the other day saying, why are we giving weapons to Ukraine when we should be spending it on baby formula? You'd hear virtually nothing like that on the right in England at all. Um, you know, it's kind of a movie they've seen before. They know their parts. They know what they have to do. Yeah. You know, I guess one other thought that uh, occurs to me, and I don't know if you or actually Eric, you should pitch in on this as well. I suspect that the British have got a lot of credit within a part of the EU right now. That is to say, the East European states uh, and probably the, um, the Scandinavian states. And, and I think it, it, I all, it also seems to me that it'll be very interesting to see the dynamics in this larger NATO and indeed in the EU, where I, I think you'll probably not have unanimity, but there'll be a very substantial block of, um, call them confrontation states or something like that, uh, backed by the United States and Britain, Canada, I suppose, to some extent, um, which will not be an entire harmony with, say, France, Germany, maybe Italy. One shouldn't make too much of that. I mean, I, I don't think you know, there's enough basic consensus now that you know, pretty much the whole EU, with a couple of exceptions, is moving in roughly the same direction. But, the, but there are important differences there. And it does seem to me the Brits are going to be part of that. I don't know if that makes sense to either of you. Well, it does to me. I mean, I think what you're talking about really is the frontline states who are going to be closest to the threat from Russia. I think it will suit a lot of people, particularly in Germany and France. You already hear it. 
people saying, well, look, the you know Russian military performance has been so pathetic in Ukraine that it can't really offer much of a threat. Whereas those who are closest to it and who've experienced it, the way the Finns did in 1939 and 40, the way the Central Europeans did after the end of the Second World War, I think people underestimate the trauma of that. I mean, our our friend and colleague, Ann Applebaum, who's written a terrific book about the uh, Soviet takeover of, of Central and Eastern Europe, has pointed out that many of the same things that are going on in Ukraine, filtration camps, uh, deportations, uh, separation of children from parents, a lot of these things, uh, not to mention the killings and uh, war crimes, uh, went on uh, in Central and Eastern Europe at the end of World War II and uh, during the advent of the uh, Soviet domination of those places. So it's inevitable that they're going to feel the threat more keenly, however poorly the Russian military performs. Uh, and I suspect you will see a kind of alignment, um, certainly as long as, as the, the Tories are in power. I'm curious for Nick's view, since he's talked about the change in the in the Labour Party uh, with Keir Starmer as its leader, moving away from Corbynism. I mean, I think on our side of the pond, most Americans had thought that under Corbyn, labor was pretty much unelectable in the UK. Uh, now, presumably, it has a better shot at winning office. If a labor government came in, Nick, how would you see it playing in this kind of set of questions that Elliot has just raised? Well, um, I think... Uh, well. Predictions about the future are always, uh, <laughs> never make predictions, especially about the future, as they say. Um, uh, on paper, certainly, it's, it, is, it is now a pro-NATO party, uh, whereas under Corbyn it wasn't. Uh, it is also a more confidently anti-totalitarian party, whereas the, the left, resent, represented by Corbyn, by Mélenchon, it will take any enemy of the West, including enemies from what would used to be called the far right, as long as they're anti-Western, you know, particularly in the Middle East or in radical Islam. Um, it's not that anymore. In practice, I don't know. In practice, I think it's always harder to persuade centre-left politicians to spend more money on defence than it is centre-right politicians, for instance. Um, uh, but here's a scenario that could have happened. Trump could have won the 2020 election. Jeremy Corbyn in the UK could have won the 2019 UK election. And then where would Ukraine be? I mean, I do not like to think. Uh, you know, I, I sit here, uh, I'm an atheist, but almost praying for Ukrainian victory before January 2025, because what happens if Trump gets back in the White House? Which strikes me, strikes me as, as perfectly possible. Yes, it's a terrifying prospect for us Americans, or at least some of us. Um, but yes, I think you're right. It's it's not something that can be gainsaid, I'm afraid. Yeah. Where, where did um, Corbynism come from? Nick? I mean, I, you know, I think we, on this side of the pond, we spend a lot of our time brooding about where did Trump come from? Because he, it just so... I mean, I, I used to be a Republican. I don't know if uh, Eric still is, but we, you know we were part of a party that was just utterly different from what um, yeah. Trump was. We, but I, I'm curious on the other side of the fence. Uh, I'm sure you're, people have to be asking themselves, how did such a an utterly unsuitable, 
radical kind of character come to power in a party which you know has has been able to sift its way through different kinds of leaders and uh, you know purge them when necessary but normally not let crazy people come to the top um oh dear you could write a book about this in fact i have written a book about it uh let's go go for a couple of reasons the financial crash of 2008 the fact that uh as in america most british the average british worker has not had a real terms pay rise for we're getting on for 15 20 years um the shutting out of the young from capitalism in its broader sense people can't kids go to university now they get a load of debt as in america they can't afford to buy homes the iraq war and the fact the war was fought on a false prospectus um, and then just a wider cultural point uh, labor never had um much purchase in middle class culture in britain uh, it's left but it's not labor um it's uh, it's i uh, it either suits great individual liberty liberalism or a, a kind of far left analysis that the whole system is corrupt is evil but a far left uh, this is a point i've made for many years uh, on the far left it actually suits the far left for there not to be communism anymore. This goes back to what I was saying. In the past, I mean, when I was young, you should say, you're a communist. Well, that means you believe in the Soviet Union, which is, you can see, it's disgusting. Now far leftism is far more diffused, far, <clears throat> in a funny way, far less intellectually rigorous. Um, there's nothing like Marxism, which, whatever you think of it, is least a doctrine you have to work a bit to try to understand. And that, that, that makes it far easier for it to become popular. I mean, when I say popular, by the end, although Corbyn did quite well in the general election we had in 2017, by 2019, when he was sort of found out, I mean, it was a disaster for the Labour Party. It was almost like your 1972 election with Richard Nixon won by a landslide. It was just all kinds of <clears throat> traditional Labour Party voters were, were not prepared to vote for, uh, vote, to vote for him again. Um, as for Starmer, uh, we we will see. Um, it is very, very under our system, which is not proportional. Uh, it's uh, first past the post, like in American elections, um, better without the electoral college. Uh, it normally, if you go down to the defeat of the size the Labour Party went down to in twenty nineteen, it normally takes you two elections to get back up again. Um, on the other hand, this government, Boris Johnson's government, whatever you say about his performance in Ukraine, is such a mess. Uh, it really is a mess that you do think there is a chance for maybe some kind of hung parliament and then a change to a more proportional European-style voting system, um, which which may come about. Uh, but again, you know, uh, Unless Tony Blair's leading the Labour Party, the safe thing to do with the Labour Party in Britain is always bet on it losing because you'll make a lot of money. One of the things that troubled a lot of people in the US as they watched UK politics was the apparent rise of anti-Semitism inside the Labour Party under Corbyn. How has Keir Starmer done in, uh, in dealing with, with that issue? Oh, he's done well. He's really put his foot down. And... 
it goes to one of my theories. You know, it may disagree with me of disagree with me on this. I think anti-Semitism, like a lot of racism, like a lot of uh, conspiratorial politics, really gets its head when people at the top of society authorize it or seem to give it a free pass. And uh, don't disagree and, with that at all. And uh, yeah, I mean, well, you can say these are it's just there, it's out there, and it's one. But I mean, Starmer has absolutely made it priority to stamp that out and has done so very well. And so much so that when, to its shame, we have um, an Equalities and Human Rights Commission in Britain, which is kind of a legal body. It's there to investigate and to lay down uh, judgments which have legal force. You know, it's not someone just giving their opinion. It's a, it's a quasi-legal body. And it's investigated anti-Jewish hatred in the Labour Party and said all kinds of things are wrong. All kinds of things had happened. Uh, it was systemic. It was uh, uh, embedded into, into how procedures were being used. And Corbyn essentially refused to accept the results. So Starmer just chucked him out of the Parliamentary Labour Party. Jeremy Corbyn will not, will not be able to stand as a Labour MP at the next election because of his inability to his inability to just be a mensch, essentially, at the most basic level, and just admit he'd been wrong, which, like so many of these people, like Trump, they, they never do. But um, uh, so, that, so that's the scale of it. It's, um, it's, as, it's, it's the equivalent of Trump being expelled from not, not, not being able to run as a Republican candidate, which incidentally brings me back to the final reason uh, for the rise of Corbyn, which is the importation into Britain of American-style politics, particularly primaries. Um, and primaries sound so democratic and sound so lovely, but what you get is, as you can see in the Republican Party, and I guess in lots of parts of the Democratic Party in the US, you can see it in the Labour Party in Britain, you can see it in the Conservative Party in Britain, is that party members, the ideological hardcore, have a grip on... on on political parties and uh, politicians who want to become leaders or want to become uh, MPs, congressmen, congresswomen, senators, they're appealing to the people of the power in the primaries, not to the wider electorate. And if, as in the case of Britain in 2019, when, they, when both the Labour and the Conservative Party, the main parties, have both candidates who just appeal to their base, in a sense that... that that doesn't matter because the voters then haven't got the choice. They can only choose the, you know, the lesser of two, two evils um, as there's no one uh, uh, because the system just simply doesn't allow a kind of Joe Biden figure or a kind of Keir Starmer figure to come through. Um, and primary politics have uh, very hard to argue against, incidentally. It's very hard to stand up or even write in a newspaper column, let alone be a politician, and say, actually... I think it's far better to have gatekeepers and have uh, well, no one smokes anymore, smoke-filled rooms, than have party democracy. But party democracy has has always has the possibility of uh, of crazy movements, extreme movements capturing the parties. You know, I, I think I, I tend to um, agree with that, but I, I I do wonder if the problem goes more deeply than just the primary system. And I, completely with you on that as applies uh, over here. And that is just whether um, in general political parties are 
for a variety of reasons in a whole bunch of countries, uh, stopping, not working anymore. I mean, in the United States, they always did have this function of aggregating different interests and, um, uh, and so on. But, you know, if you look at, there are a whole bunch of countries where you look around and you say, you know, where are the party structures that they used to have? And you can see that in continental Europe, uh, you see it in the United States, you see it in the UK, just in things like party membership, how many people are committed enough to a political party to want to belong to it. You know, I, I, one wonders what, what democratic politics looks like when you have a very weak set of parties. Well, it's a very good point. I mean, perhaps, and I don't mean this flippantly either, uh, political parties grew up in the 19th and 20th century when there's very limited forms of other entertainment, of entertainment. You know, you uh, a political party, you would go there, you would, there'll be their own culture, their own speakers, you'd meet people, uh, you'd marry people from them. They had their own worlds. And in the world where, you know, you can just flip on your phone and get entertainment of every possible variety you want as a communal organization they they do everywhere look kind of weak and their membership's old um uh in all political parties in britain the average age of membership is way over 50 um uh and they suddenly start looking very 20th century and the attractions of them to anyone apart from ideologues or careerists seem to be Fading. Why? <clears throat> why go to a party meeting? Why campaign? Why? Why put in all those hours listening to dreary speakers and handing out leaflets? It all feels suddenly very archaic. Well, in the 18th and 19th centuries in the U.S., the which is the heyday of the rise of our political parties, copious amounts of alcohol were involved as well. <laughs> Not just public entertainment, which it was uh, indeed, but but also alcohol. I'm afraid to say was 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 deeply in, involved. Uh, you know, look, I agree with the uh, you know general tenor of of this part of the conversation. I mean, uh, you know, look at the kind of hapless performance of the Democrats uh, since Biden's election. I mean, they control both houses of, of Congress, the Senate barely, but still. And uh, yet the polling shows that, you know, as the press is reporting in the United States, they may be on the verge of what some Democratic consultants are calling an extinction event because they are doing so poorly in the polls. A lot of that, though, I think reflects, to Elliot's point, just a, a, a real revulsion by Americans at politics as a whole. Um, and in some certain sense, who can blame them after what we've been through over the last four or five, five years? But I, I think there's really a desire on the part of many, many Americans to just not want to pay attention to it, not want to be drawn into it, and just going about, you know, sort of their personal life and private concerns without much awareness that a lot of what's going on is going to affect their personal life and private concerns if they let other people make the decisions. Yeah, well, it's what you're describing is a kind of a feedback loop. Parties become dominated by their base, by their ideologues, the politics they produce yeah, Republican or Democrat, left or right, repulses people. And, and uh, that repulsion then feeds back so fewer people are, are, are voting for parties or joining parties who aren't uh, a part, of, part of the inner clique. And so, and, uh, and so it all goes merrily on of 
merrily is quite the word, right word to use. So what makes you um, optimistic? Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I tend to agree with you. The, you know, the, the spectacle of the, the Ukrainians putting up this incredible fight, uh, which they may, which I actually tend to believe that they will win in some meaningful sense, the surprising unity and resolve, you know, all, all the qualifications notwithstanding um, in Europe and, and in the United States uh, is tremendously impressive. But is, you know, is what you think you're seeing now some kind of fundamental resilience of democratic politics uh, or is it something else? Oh, well, oh dear. I'm a newspaper journalist. I don't really do optimism. Uh, yeah, I know. I, uh, uh, yeah, I think cautiously optimistic because it's not just the resilience of the Ukrainian resistance, heroic though that has been. On the whole, nearly all Western countries have performed far better than you'd expect. If you had run this scenario as a kind of war game a year ago, you'd have said, well, the EU would have torn itself apart, NATO would have torn itself, with the exception of um, uh, Tucker Carlson's favourite uh, micro-dictatorship in Hungary. That, 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 that simply hasn't happened. I mean, there have been all kinds of arguments and all kinds of failures. But on the whole, um, Putin uh, hugely underestimated Ukrainian resistance, but he also underestimated um, how the West will pull itself together. And it has done to an extent. You, you know, I'll, uh, I'll just finish off with this. Uh, obviously, I'm impressed by what Western governments have done. But I have to say, I'm also I'm impressed by standing ovations at Eurovision or at the Cannes yeah. Film Festival. Because uh, those are people who basically, I think, probably don't pay a whole lot of serious attention to politics and yet are clearly pretty profoundly moved by what they're seeing. And, um, you know, that's, uh, that is a positive sign. I don't know. Eric, Eric, do you think I've gone off the deep end being too cheerful here? Yeah, this is very atypical for Shield of the Republic. We know we're, we're, we're never this, you know, we're never this optimistic by the end of a show. So I, I, uh, no, I, I, I actually have been struck Elliot by the same, the, the same thing. But I do want to close out with with one question. I know Nick, you don't want to you know predict, and and I'm not trying to put you on the spot by making you predict something. But you know, looking back on many of the things you've written about the the fate of dictators, you know, Milosevic, Saddam, I think all three of us think that Ukraine, in some sense, is going to win uh, this war. Certainly, it will succeed in preventing Putin from obtaining his uh, at least earlier announced objectives. What happens to Putin in all this? What, what happens to the authoritarian who, who loses a war? Well, uh, uh, this raises a question. Um, people like us, people in the West, like to think, well, Putin is oppressing Russians as much as he's oppressing Belarusians, Ukrainians, which is true to an extent. Uh, and that... If Putin falls, then Ukraine's enemy falls. But lots of Ukrainians I've heard say, look, our enemy isn't Putin, our enemy is Russia. And um, I don't know. I, I, I'm speaking from Britain, a post-imperial European power. Uh, Spain, Holland, Portugal, France, Britain have all lost their empires. 
in the 20th century and have emerged as post-imperial uh, societies. Russia is still a European empire. It is still the empire of the Tsars uh, and the Commissars, and it hasn't even begun decolonization. And, oh, I don't know, Eric. I mean, I would love to think that Putin falls and Russia realizes its potential, stops allowing all its natural wealth to be stolen and starts developing as a modern country. But, I mean, you look at its history. I mean, the only people who ever rule are, 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 are Tsars, are general secretaries of the Communist Party or, 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 or Putin. So my gut, rather pessimistic feeling is uh, there's an awful long way to go with Russia and an awful lot of misery to be played out. It's hard to disagree with that as someone who lived in the Soviet Union um, for two years as an American diplomat. Oh, yeah. um, it's it's uh, hard, to, hard to disagree with that. Uh, I still have trouble... Uh, sort of eliminating my ongoing fantasy that Russia democratizes. It, it uses this opportunity to not only get rid of Putin, but to finally uh, understand that it needs to be, as as Russians who I met in that time period, I used to say a normal country, uh, as you were just suggesting, a kind of post-imperial country without the post-imperial stress syndrome that you know they seem to be... Uh, experiencing and that they become a candidate ultimately as a democracy at peace with its neighbors for NATO membership, which is what we hoped to do when we launched NATO enlargement back in the, uh, in the nineties, because um, that in and of itself would be, I think a helpful contribution to uh, the West dealing with, um, with the PRC, which is I think going to be the major challenge for, for, for the rest of the century, for all of us. Um, but it uh, doesn't look like that's very likely to happen. Nick Cohen, I want to thank you. Or oh, Elliot, do you well, want to? Thank you so much for bringing this podcast back because we're about to end on an optimi- optimistic. I know, and I've now completely screwed that up. It's a great intervention, I think. <laughs> yeah, I was about to thank you, Eric, for bringing us back, uh, bringing us back to earth there, so that you know our, our listeners will not be disappointed. But. Nick, I also want to thank you, and uh, who knows, maybe we'll find a connection in the family tree sometime. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure.